Hi guys, this week in the podcast we have a conversation with no one less than Mr. Michael Vincent. We're going to be talking about Mike's life and the different experiences that formed him as a magician. We're also going to be talking about what Mike would do different if he would start in magic today. And the importance of studying the classics in magic. So grab a nice cup of coffee and enjoy the podcast. How are you today, Michael? How am I? Yeah. Well, you know I'm looking after my mother, so I'm exhausted constantly. Mm. Mentally, physically, emotionally exhausted. That's my reality right now. No time for fighting games. Different Mm. experience of life. Because that's what it is. Must be tough, but I expect you're also learning something from this, right? Yeah, I'm learning the true meaning of the word love and humility. In in what way? Well, just consider, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it wasn't for my mother, because when I, I said to her, I want to study magic, she said to me, enjoy your life. Hmm. She didn't stop me. She didn't constrain me. She just said, do your best at school, but enjoy your life. <laughs> she said, you'll find your way. And uh, her greatest gift to me, when I told her I wanted to study with Dining, she said, where does he live? I said, he lives in America. She says, well, how are you getting there? He said, well, the man in the magic shop is going to take me. Who is this man in the magic (laughs) shop? I said, his name's Alan. She says, you're not going anywhere with somebody I don't know. So one Saturday, she turned up at the magic shop while I was there, caught me completely by surprise. And she spoke to Alan. She said, my son tells me you want to take him to America. Why? She said, well, Alan said, well, it will be good for him. He'll meet all the great magicians. But particularly, I want him to meet Slidini. She said, why? She said, well, he's going to be one of the great magicians of all time. And uh, this experience is a very important piece of the puzzle. That was the honest, exact conversation. So my mother said, okay, you can go. And she said, don't come home with something you didn't leave with. Mm. That was her cue for come home safely. And uh, it's funny, that statement gave me the confidence to travel all over the world on my own. And I always returned home safely. That was my guardian angel. And uh, now that my mother is in this twilight zone of her Mm. life, I'm now her guardian angel. And my daily mission is to ensure that she eats well, she sleeps well, her hygiene is impeccable, and I try and keep her as stable as possible. Do you realize some days I can't even achieve two or three out of those objectives? Mm. Something simple that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. I feel like a failure most days. That's the truth. Mm. Um, how am i i'm tired (laughs) i can imagine i mean that that sounds very tough but at the same time it also sounds meaningful to be able to give something like this back say that last bit again it sounds uh very tough but also meaningful in some way to be able to give it back yeah it's funny you mentioned that because 
I think of Viktor Frankl. This is no exaggeration. I think of Viktor mm. Frankl. I think of Jesus on the cross. Okay, I think pain, suffering. These are life experiences, but it's what we as humans make the experience mean that determines our relationship and quality of life. Definitely. Okay. And I'm a big fan of Viktor Frankl because his writings, I think I have his book somewhere. I, funny enough, I just put it on the shelf. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning is on here somewhere. It was, it was so beautifully distinguished how he was able to recognize there's one part of himself that could never, ever be touched by anyone. Mm. And that was his ability to choose what this meant to him. <laughs> Robbed of his name, tattooed number on his arm. These are all external. But inside of him was his greatest superpower, his ability to choose. Okay, I'm here. Maybe I can save some people by sharing with them how I'm handling this situation. Rico, we were in the camps. We saw it. Mm. We saw Auschwitz. So, that's insane. you know, we were both very quiet in this place. But for me, mm. it was extraordinary to think, how could this man survive this place? But he did. So I just think to myself, okay, my experience doesn't come close to that. But I have mm -hmm. to fight the, the will every day to get out of bed and face whatever may come. Even if it's, I don't shuffle a deck of cards, doesn't matter. It's um, sort of um, surrendering to the moment. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, surrendering. And um, I'm grateful for one thing. If you look at the word love, love is a is an is a verb, and a verb is a demonstration of some kind or an action of some kind. So if anyone says to me, "I love you," what I'm looking for is where's your behavior of love towards me. Your mm -hmm. words don't mean anything unless it's backed up by a loving gesture, a kind thought, a demonstration of some kind. So this experience, I cook when I don't feel like it. I wash the dishes when I don't feel like it. I give mm. my mother a shower, as embarrassing as it is, I have to do it. That's love in action. Mm. Why? Because it's my mission to preserve her dignity right to the very end. Because I want to be able to live the rest of my life knowing I did my best. And there's no measure for me what my best is because I'm not trained for this. I'm learning every minute of the day what it means. Mm. And sure, I get mad as hell at some of the of things I have to deal with. Mm. I think this is very important what you're saying because this is giving a motivation to your life because the, the free time that you have, it's going to be for you. And you're giving a motivation for your free time as well, because the time that you are dedicating to, to taking time to your mom, 
is for for her and obviously for the love that you feel for her but the free time that you have for example to take care of your life your mental care as well your magic your time to read books or your i don't know to if you want to just to stay on the on the sofa just resting or just meeting a friend everything is for you and everything has a motivation as well so you are more conscious than other people you know about your free time so i think this is very important as well because many people spend like a lot of hours in front of their phones you know like spending a lot of hours chilling and wasting time and they are not conscious even me i, I know I, i waste a lot of time during my day but i try to be super conscious about what i'm doing i don't know if you know what i mean yes i like what you said there where am i putting my energy yeah it's funny you mentioned this somebody on instagram wanted to meet up with me this weekend and i politely said no it's not possible i said i'm investing i'm investing all my energy now in me i don't want to spend any time around magicians over coffee i want to spend it for myself and my mother and i'm very comfortable on my own am i lonely no i'm alone but i'm not lonely <laughs> that's just the way my mind is so you're right my motivation i get up in the morning 5 a.m go for coffee sit quietly read maybe shuffle and by the time i get back mum is up and my day begins for her and then i fall asleep when it's all over groundhog day <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I but think i think that's every... uh go go uh, so, so, so no go 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 no worries so sorry. <laughs> i think it's um it's a good thing what you're saying as well mike because um you're doing something that that i like to do myself as well which is to wake up and take maybe one to two hours for yourself to just read a book, do magic, do whatever you feel that you need and then spend your time for someone else, which in my case is working a job uh, 40 hours a week. Yeah, and I think that's very important for everyone to do. Yeah, I'm, I'm not used to practicing very early in the morning because I'm not awake. Mm. Try doing eight perfect Ferris shuffles while you're half asleep. <laughs> <laughs> or a riffle stacking drill. <laughs> so as funny as it is, it's quite serious. You know, so um, I have faith that somewhere along the road, I will be able to put more energy back into magic. The video link I sent you, Rico, of that card routine, that's the longest I've spent on putting together any routine really simply because i've been distracted mm. I, i kept coming back to it because i knew what i wanted to do with it and uh, i've been thinking my god a whole year thinking about these two effects and how they can work well together as a composite into one event mm. that's almost 12 minutes of card magic And that's my effect. Mm. So that's one year. And I only put it down to the fact that I was mentally tired. So that just shows you where, let's just say 18% of my energy is not focused on magic completely. Mm. That makes sense. You know, how do you go about uh, creating such a routine? I'm sorry. 
How do you go about creating such a routine? Well, this is a good question. One shot, one kill, 12 the hard way. I first saw Darwin perform them before the book was published. So the seed was planted. When the book, when Darwin asked me to write the introduction, I had the book in my hand, but no drawings. So I read every routine. And I learned one shot, one kill, and I like it. It's a lovely piece. It's very similar to Pitt Hartland's Finger Flicker. Mm. It's similar to a routine of, actually, Pitt's routine probably came first, then Darwin, and then Mike Pisciotta's got a routine called Zen Master, which uses the breather crimp. It's the same concept, card control. But I like Pitt. I like Darwin's routine the most because... It has variety. Okay. When I read 12 the Hard Way, I loved the scope of it. It's matching the cards, but the scope was bigger. Okay. I learned Suit Apparition from Pepe Carroll. I loved the concept. What didn't work for me was the pacing of the one-at-a-time production. But I understood the concept. Produced those 12 cards and the transformation at the end. So these are all little pieces of information. And then the idea pops into my head. When I got the book, I just thought it would be wonderful to do one shot, one kill, and then go straight into 12 the hard way. My obvious solution was to do a deck switch, but I wanted to preserve a deck switch for something that would go even further. But I thought, you know what? I'm sure I could put the two together because I'm used to working around a stack because some of my best tricks, I'm working around a stack of 12 cards. This trick, I'm working around a stack of 26 cards. Hmm. So I went through many variations and I wanted to keep the handling procedure as direct as possible. I didn't want too much handling after each phase. When one phase was done, I'm straight into the next phase. So if you watch the video, you will not see too much gratuitous handling. Mm. It's just something I'm very pleased with. It just flows as if I could do it by real magic or superhuman skill. That's what I was aiming for. In fact, it's a demonstration of skill which transcends into something profoundly impossible. If you watch the video, my only criticism of the routine as I learned it it's what I call a flat routine. Everything happens flat on the table. And then all of a sudden, that packet comes about eight inches off the table. It's a function of the method to do the packet switch. I just felt that packet coming up here, it drew my eye to it. And I'm looking at my own video performances Am I making sense? Mm. I said, I want to I switch packets in such a way 
It doesn't draw any attention. Nothing. Just turn the packet over and spread them. <laughs> what motivated this was the Zoom show that I did hmm. because I wanted the switch to fool the camera. Mm. As it so happened, it fools the eye real time. So I got the best of both worlds. So I'm experimenting. I'm doing the zinc, the, the jinx switch. I'm trying the top change with packets. None of them felt right. The jinx switch is beautiful, but it's odd because mm. the packet ends up in the wrong hand. And because of the lockdown, it's obvious you can see it real time in front of an audience they won't see it because i would have directed their attention elsewhere just for a slight beat and when they see me spread the packet they make an assumption i created an, an original switch <laughs> completely original and it's not even a slight as we know it it's all mm. choreography within the natural flow of gathering cards up and i watch it over and over i thought holy crap <laughs> this is a perfect match have you ever there's a very special camera called a leica it's unlike any other camera in the world and when you to get perfect focus when you look through the screen you see two images and you've got to turn the manual focus so that the images line up. If it's slightly off, it's going to be out of focus. But as mm. you look through it, it's got to line up perfectly. This is a perfect metaphor for when I create. If I could do it by real magic, what would it look like? What would I see? So this whole routine, I went through the whole sequence no setup. I just did it. And I pretended everything was working out. I just wanted to see my mannerisms. How does my handling look? Where does this packet go? Okay, I'll put it. Okay, fine. That looks good. And then I put the technique in. I aim for this. A perfect match between my imagination and what technical resources I have at my disposal. The last bit I had to create from scratch because there was nothing like it in print. Even Darwin said, wow, because he didn't think of putting the two together. But to me, it's now a complete composition. Mm -hmm. I don't think Cartrix anymore, Alvaro. You inspired me with this because of the way you, the way you worked on um, reflections. Yours oh. is the best handling I've seen, period. It's even better than Gabby's. Because oh, if you, you could, if you could really do it, you would see duplicates. You wouldn't see the ten of hearts and ten of spades. <laughs> Perfect. And you it's so your much. routine, so I'm not going to touch it, even though you shared it with me. It's yours, and <laughs> I feel this is the level of honor all magicians should bring when they have respect for each other. That's yours because you created it. It's got your stamp on it, so. I'm not going to handle it the same way you would. Does, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. So when I watch anyone do Reflectos, I'd much rather you do it. <laughs> if, you, if, if you really think about it, that's the way it should be. 
when people want to come see me perform, they want to see my travelers. They want to see the ladies looking glass. Um, my open travelers. It's unlike anything in print. Why? Because it comes close to my vision. So I want magicians to get excited to see me. Why? Because I do tricks in a way that nobody else does them. It's got the Vincent touch. So um, with regards to your question, Rico, I've gone round the houses to explain <laughs> it very broadly. But for me, it's very simple. When I decide to learn a classic routine, I just sit quietly. If I had the power, what would it look like? If I was in the audience mm -hmm. watching myself, what do I want to see? How do I want it to look? Right. What techniques do I have in my toolbox to bring it to life? And then mm. I get to work. I really, I really appreciate you going around actually, because it gives a much deeper scope of the whole situation. Um, but also what I hear you say, which I think we should learn more from magic books is a mental image, like a mental movie. That when we read an effect, we should first imagine, okay, how would this look like before we ever read the method? Because then we have an image of how it would look like if by real magic. And then if something is off, we can try to change that. Yeah. I think it's so important to learn the classics because you learn about structure, you learn about design, even though I didn't have these words in my vocabulary as a boy, as I'm speaking to you, all the books that I bought as a boy is right above my screen. <laughs> Harry Lorraine, Vernon. I've got a bit of Jobby and Darwin and Apocalypse, Stars and Magic. These are the books I read as a boy. They're right there. If I had to let all my library go, these books would stay because they taught me the principles of construction and design by osmosis while mm. I'm learning tricks. But when I read Designing Miracles by Darwin, all the puzzles, the puzzle became very vivid for me in terms of what makes an effect strong. Let me give you something to consider. All of my routines now begin with the spectator shuffling the deck. Stop and think for a minute. Mm. Think about the implications of starting every routine by saying, here, give these a shuffle. Even if I need a complex setup, that setup mm. will be generated. But the spectator has shuffled the deck. <laughs> I love card at a number. And the one thing missing from that premise, there's no involvement for the spectator where it is most needed. Ladies and gentlemen, before I begin, I want to involve as many people as possible. Here, shuffle the deck, shuffle. So I hand out small packets. They go inside the box, put them on the table. A card is generated. A number is generated. Game over. Yeah. Game over. And it's magnificent. And I don't present it as a magic trick. Mm. I present it as an extraordinary outcome that has every possibility of failing. But if it doesn't fail, we can all leave here tonight knowing 
we were present to an extraordinary happening. Shall we go for it? <laughs> I built it up. I said, I don't mind failing if you're willing to fail with me. Mm. Otherwise, I'm going to fail on my own. That's how I present it. Does that make sense? It yeah. does. And it raises a new question for me. Um, what would be ways to involve our audience without giving them the deck to shuffle or letting them pick a card? What would be a way to involve the audience mm. without them picking a card? For example, because very often when we talk about audience involvement, we talk about multiple people picking a card. But I think even if you're doing cutting the aces, for example, you could involve everyone. And I'm just wondering how you would see this. This, this is a very good question because I think five weeks ago, I did a live show at the Magic Circle. You've seen the video on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And the guidelines were they can't handle the props. We need to be two meters apart. So there's no shuffling of the deck. They can't pick a card. So I had to restructure my whole show. But you want to know something? The smiling mule got the strongest reaction ever. Hmm. Why is that? And I've been thinking about that experience and I've reframed the smiling mule as a different experience. Now, moving forward, I'm not going to have a spectator on stage with me when I do it. I'm going to stand on stage and do it by myself because that experience I had made it stronger. Hmm. It's a conversation piece. And the way that I've got it framed now, I trigger the spectator to saying, you know what would be really good? If my card was actually in between the two jokers. Because that's what I was expecting. I said, do you realize what a miracle that would be? He said, well, do it. <laughs> that's so... the challenge I want going on between their ears. Mm. Because Rico, for me, participation is not just physical. And mm -hmm. it's not just having someone on stage looking gormless. Participation is psychological and emotional. And they can do that while they're sat in their chair. Exactly. So you're trying to get them to ask a question in their minds and then you're answering this question. Yeah, I want to, I want to engage them here and here. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, okay, real, real, authentic close-up magic is four to five people around a table seated mm. and i'm seated as well and the master at this was goshman mm. albert goshman i saw goshman live i sat next to him when he did it it's one of the greatest close-up shows i've ever seen in my life it was real magic okay so you 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 can know for yourself if this is correct because if you watch most close-up magicians when they have two people either side they're just a prop mm. they might as well be dummies or mannequins <laughs> so the real test of showmanship and artistry is to perform in such a manner that the people feel engaged and they're listening to you like this but it's a live experience Mm. As an example, have you seen Helder's show, um, Alvaro? It, yeah. I've not seen it, but I can imagine him being as good as he is. 
he would find a way to engage people. And you've got to, given the fact that you're working to a screen, there's no other way. You've got to bring them in somehow. You've got to break the fourth wall of the screen and create the feeling that you're in people's homes with them. Oh, well, you, you mean the last one, right? I, I didn't see the last one. I, I saw the, the, um, the other one, the, the one that he used to do, how was for like borrowed time? Uh, yeah, I think it was borrowed time. The one that he did in, in Spain when he was touring. Yeah, but the, the, the one that he was doing in, in Zoom, I didn't, I didn't saw that one. Yeah, I didn't see that one. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. You understand what it I'm was, saying? I mean, yeah, we're, in, with the, with we're engaged with, yeah, we're engaged with each other now. So I'm so grateful for the time that I've appeared on television because my mentor told me how to conduct myself in front of the camera. Yeah. So this has always been a great comfort for me being able to do that, to speak to a camera as if it's a person. So anyone watching would feel the engagement. Okay. So for me, I'm spending more time thinking engagement, narrative, story, emotional content, and the big why. Why should the audience care? Especially now. Do you know what? We have to make the audience care more now than ever before because the whole world is isolated. Yeah. And doing this is not connection. It's an illusion. It's, it's, a complete, it's a complete illusion. I agree. I Definitely. agree. Yeah. There is something very interesting, like involving people. There was a magician from Spain who used to to involve people in the show, giving giving candies every time they were participating in the show. I I know it's can it's can sound like very very immature, but in the in the past in Spain it was very typical uh, when I don't know when my grandparents used to go to the church in the church they they used to to receive like candies very typical candies uh, they were like coffee candies and they used to give the candies to the great uh, children you know so my so my grandma and my grandpa they used to give me these candies you know so in the show this magician used to say do you remember when our grandpas used to uh, to give us you know like these candies and everyone was remembering you know their grandparents so it was like something very sweet so every time that uh, an spectator shuffled the deck or just think of a car or at the end of uh, of a uh, of something he used to to give a, a to give a candy. So at the end of the show, he said, "How many people shuffle the deck?" And they used to put the candy on the top, you know. So he was stimulating the tasting. So they were shuffling. They were thinking of a card. They were see. They were seeing magic. They were collaborating, shouting, laughing, and they were tasting as well magic because they were eating, you know, candies <laughs> during the show. So. It was something very cool. I think it, it is a beautiful idea and something that I didn't see in in any other person, you know, in, 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 in magic. So, so yeah. Well, you can see this is one approach to getting people feeling that they're part of something. Yeah. Okay. 
uh, it's emotional blackmail on one hand, not good for the children's teeth, but I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, so in every interview, we do a section called Five to Die. Uh, these five to die are like five controversial question, uh, questions. Okay. Actually, they are not controversial. They are like uh, naughty questions. Okay. So um, you can avoid one of them if you want. And actually, if you answer four uh, of these five questions or you answer the five of them, you can make back a question, okay, to us. These are the questions you sent me, right? Yeah. So I'm I'm happy one... I'm happy to answer all of them. They're very good. Oh, very well. So um, so it's going to be if you started learning magic again, what things would you repeat and what things would you avoid? Okay, first things first. I'm glad I don't have to learn magic now. That's the first <laughs> point. Because I was born or should I say I came into magic at a point in time where it was at the tail end of that golden generation. All the books that I read as a boy, the authors were still alive. This was before the internet and email. And um, the first magician I reached out to was by letter. And it was Harry Lorraine. And to my astonishment, he wrote me back. So I was having an engagement, there's that word again, with the author of a magic book. So that period of time was very important to me because I was an only child. I didn't have many friends, but my friends were the magic books. And here I am engaging with one of the authors. So if I had to learn magic now, I would repeat my ability to reach out to people. If I was learning now, who are the influencers today? David Williamson, John Carney, Jason Ladani, Richard Turner. I'm, there's Danny Ortiz. Okay. I'm just thinking, who are the magicians that are doing good work? Good, good work. Michael Close. Because if you think about it right now, all the heroes have gone. <laughs> They're all gone. So I would certainly wish to cultivate that skill of communicating with people whose books I enjoyed. Because to me, this made a big difference to me. The authors became my friends. Yeah. That's very important. What else would I do? I would travel. No question. I would travel. I would want to see great magicians. Do you know what a thrill it was to sit opposite Slidini? <laughs> or to participate in Goshman's show? Or, true story, to sit next to Tommy Wonder like this. He's to my right and he's doing the cups and balls. And I'm like this. <laughs> I saw nothing. I'm just thinking. the ability sorry the privilege to sit opposite your heroes i cannot tell you how important this is let me reframe it the privilege to meet a great magician who warms to you 
and sells you great magic books like Gear Copper Rico. <laughs> nice. You cannot put a value on that. And regrettably, if I had to learn magic now, there aren't many magicians in the world that I would want to willingly reach out to. So I would probably do what everyone else is doing. The internet, maybe read a book, definitely DVDs. So I'm grateful I don't have to go through that again, which is why when I tell my students, when I teach my students, I make sure they do as much reading as possible and I guide them to the YouTube videos I want them to see because I want them to experience viscerally what magic feels like. Because if you don't have that feeling in your body, how can you give it to people? If you look at most magic demonstrations, they're quite cynical. No feeling, you don't even leave the experience happy. So um, that's a very good question you've asked there. So, um, I can say just from my own database of knowledge, what a privilege it has been for nice. me to study magic when I did. Great. Uh, let's go with the second one. Uh, does the future of magic have a name, a surname? Okay, this is a very creative question. So you've asked me a question about an aspect of magic that doesn't currently exist. But we can speculate about a possibility. So let's look at where magic is right now. It's a virtual experience. In fact, we were heading in this direction 10 years ago, if you really think about it, because of YouTube videos, Vimeo, exposures on YouTube, pair of hands floating on camera, demonstrating moves. So this zoom reality that we're in now was happening 15 years ago when youtube was born so does the craft of magic have a name in the future yes virtual reality the virtual reality of magic and you know what it's not too far from what we're experiencing right now because we're living it every day. Let's go 10 years into the future right now. The internet as we know it right now is going to be something even more profound than what we're currently ex experiencing, okay? And God only knows the technology that will be available in 10 years time that will make global communication in the furthest reaches of the world that don't even have Wi-Fi yet. It will be possible to communicate with a goat herder on top of a mountain in Timbuktu. <laughs> I'm speculating. What I'm present to I'm just present to the fact that industries failed. 
we've seen the end of industry. Bookstores are closing down, which is why Amazon is doing so well. Taxi cabs aren't happy because the average man can now become a Uber driver. Hotels are complaining. Why? Because if you've got if you've got enough money, you can rent your apartment. How cool is that to rent your home out and go traveling, knowing when you come back, you're going to have money in the bank. Everything's changed. If anything, entrepreneurialism is now in the palm of our hand. You can I run my business right here. So, yeah, virtual reality, if there's going to be another name for it, I'll create something. Entrepreneurial magic. Entrepreneur, virtual entrepreneurialism. We are in the information age. This is it. And if you've got the information that somebody wants to spend money on, you can make money no matter what the subject is. And you can do it before you've had your first cup of tea in the morning. <laughs> Sounds great, yeah. That's it. <laughs> so as far as magic is concerned, we have to accept one very important thing. Online entertainment and online teaching is here to stay. And that includes any subject you can think of. So if magic is going to be taught online, then the courses have to be of the highest standard. Okay. And as for exposure, there's nothing we can do about it because there's a lot of crap on YouTube. Okay. All right. So that's a creative yeah. response. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very well. Okay. Um, is there a branch of magic for an element that you have not studied? Um, and why? Just in yes. the case that you didn't. This is a true story. I have performed the Houdini substitution trunk in my life. I have performed it with, an, with another magician. It was part of a festival. I hated it. I was exhausted. <laughs> Jumping in and out of a box. Quick change. Oh my. I realize I'm not that athletic. <laughs> <laughs> so illusions and prancing around on stage is not for me. And that's the closest I've ever come to doing a grand scale illusion. It's very physical work. <laughs> Can you imagine me being tied up into a box? <laughs> um, what was it? Electronic release and then coming out. I just told my fr friend at the time, I'm never doing this again. It's not for me. I said, I don't ever want to be seen working hard when I'm on stage in front of an audience. Those are my exact words. I just want to come on and have fun and it all be effortless. If I break sweat, I'm working too hard. <laughs> <laughs> There's one brand of magic I would love to do. I would love to produce a bird. Uh. So many years ago, I was in 
a Spanish town called Playa Daro. Playa, Playa Daro? You know this place? Playa Daro? Playa Daro? It's, it's, a, it's a coastal town. I got the invite because I won a competition and I was there with Scott Penrose and he was showing me the birds with the loops and everything. It's ingenious. And I just love the way Pollock produced the silk. The thumb goes in and then comes up. To me, that's real magic. A bird from nowhere. And then that double production. Boop. <laughs> I would love to do that, but I've never done it. But I, yeah. understand, I understand the mechanics of it. Okay. I tell you why I like it. To produce a bird like that is symbolic. There's something intrinsically symbolic about the creation of life from nothing. And I have to say, Channing Pollock produced birds better than anyone I've ever seen. Seriously, when it came to card manipulation, Cardini. Mind you, Pollock's manipulation was outstanding, but Cardini's character with it was beautiful. Perfection, sheer perfection. So let me think, is there anything else I've missed? I like mentalism and I'm studying it as and where required. If there's one branch that I've completely avoided, it's illusions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that's nice. Okay. Um, well, let's go with the fourth one. This one is a little bit uh, longer, but it's a bit long. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, we live in a historical moment in which there are magicians for lay people and magicians for magicians. Magicians for children's parties and bachelorette parties, magicians for parties in discos and magicians for theaters. Each and every one of them defines him, himself as magician and has his functions. Yeah. They fulfill some objectives. Regardless of the type of magician you are, what do you think is your role as a magician in the world? My role as a magician is to alter the reality of is to alter the point of view of reality for my audience or the people that see me perform. I want to shake their world up. <coughs> I want them to leave my show with more questions than answers. When the woman and her husband go to bed that night, I want the wife to turn to her husband. Honey, how did Vincent read my mind and tell me what card I was thinking of? And he will say, how the fuck do I know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm being visceral here. That's the conversation I want people to have. I don't want people to leave my show saying, well done, and then go and have a cheeseburger. I want them to engage in conversation. Well, he read your mind, but don't forget, I shuffle the deck and he produced all those spades from nowhere. Oh, well, he's just clever with his hands. Yeah, yeah, we get that. But he didn't do anything. Yeah, well, he must be clever. No, what he did is much more clever than that. So my role, if I get people talking, I've disturbed their reality. In strong magic, let me get this. 
Come here, buddy. Here we go. Great book. Strong magic. Opening prologue. Only a few pages in. This changed my entire coloring book. This bit, intellectual belief versus emotional belief. It sounds like an impossible goal, doesn't it? How can you make a sophisticated audience believe in magic? You can't if you're talking about the intellect. I'm talking about the emotions. The impact of a magic effect is directly proportional to the degree to which it engages the emotions of the audience. I'm just reading you my highlights. Therefore, if you want to reach the emotions, you first have to literally baffle his intellect. Leave it without any possible explanation. My mentor said, give them a grain of truth that they can hook onto. Right, let's break it down. Beautiful. The spectator shuffles the deck before I go into lessons in mastery. Think about that. <laughs> and, then, and then I go, and the deck is shuffled throughout several times by the spectator. So when I reach that glorious finale, they will know this is not possible. They will know it's not possible because they shuffle the deck. There's a world of difference in a spectator not knowing how something is done versus them knowing that it can't be done, even though they saw it happen. Simon Aronson, the Aronson approach. So for me, look at all the different roles that a magician can be. If I'm going to entertain at a bachelorette party, I can guarantee you one thing. Those women are going to have their fortune told. I'm going to read their palms. I'm going to read their minds. I'm going to do fortune telling. I'm going to appeal to their emotions. If I'm doing a show for some of the top poker players in the world, well, guess what? I'm going to do one shot, one kill. Okay. I'm going to do gambling demonstrations. I'll do proposition bets. I will teach them and make them aware that I know about their world and that I can do the work. I will never talk or talk bottom deals, but it will happen. And they will walk away with the highest level of respect for what I can achieve with a deck of cards. And I will not expose a single thing. You with me? So look at this. Bachelorette parties. Magicians, magician, let's talk about that. If you look on YouTube, well, sorry, Instagram, what do we see, Rico? We see magicians demonstrating all the latest skills from Steve Forty's mm. book. Mm. Who's it for? It's for magicians. <laughs> and, what, and the subtext is, look at what I can do. He'll... Whoever does it will get likes and thumbs up. But where does that fit within the context of a show or a demonstra or a performance of some kind? There's nothing wrong, but it just shows you the narrow market. 
if you go down that specific road. I'm an entertainer, I'm a performer, I can work to any audience and I can give each specific audience exactly what they need. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. So, and my goal is always to alter reality for people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Definitely. Totally. Definitely. Yeah. Nice. Okay, and uh, let's go with the fifth one because the section was called five to die. So let's see if we die or we we are still alive. Okay. So was any time in the past burden or do you think is in, there is hope in, in the new generations? <laughs> What's interesting about this question, the time that I grew up in, I wasn't thinking this is better because it was all I knew. It was all that was available. Let's get into the minds of young people today with what's available to them right now. Most of the people online think they know me. Why? Because of my engagement through YouTube. They don't know anything different. I know different. Why? Because I could interact real time with my heroes. Some of the people that see me online, if they're lucky, I may travel to their country and do a lecture at a magic club that they belong to. Let's just consider there's no better or worse. It's what we need to look at is how do we function in the reality that we're in right now so that we can achieve our objective for me is to share and teach for the people out there to see great magic hopefully be inspired well there is hope and the hope is very simple this this conversation is you're going to put it online someone's going to listen mm -hmm. to it they'll get excited oh michael vincent boom let me put his name into youtube oh video Wow, he's been on Penn and Teller. Wow, I like this invisible practice. Let me subscribe. They've got some good people on board. So it's a win-win situation for both of us. We are mm. going to propagate each other's reality. Okay? So let's work together to keep the conversation provocative and healthy, stimulating. Mm. Let's create logical arguments, not to be belligerent. We need to understand what are they thinking out there? Mm. Read every comment that gets posted. Make a note of who said what. And if you guys do a live event, these guys are going to come on board. Mm. You now know what the general consensus is. I can give you a sense of what I think it is right now. Magicians are lazy. <laughs> they're, they're not reading. Why? Because magic's become a commodity. It's easy to click a button and to learn a secret. It's a hell of a lot harder to go on a scavenger hunt looking for a secret. But what a joyful thing it is when you discover something in a book that nobody else has discovered. And you know you have, because magicians are always going to say, is that yours? Is it in print? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So Thanks. 
just to wrap up, I would say we have to keep hope healthy. Mm. And the way to yeah. do that, keep it provocative. Nice. Nice. I, so I, now you can make you can make a question if, if you want. Well, there's there's I can see a few more questions. We can answer them if you want. Mm. Yeah, of course. That's okay. Those are records. So. Okay. You've got here. So what would I recommend the new generation of magicians to find their own way and not get lost in all the hype of the magic market? This is a difficult one because we are all seduced by the next book, the next mm -hmm. down or the next new trick. This may be a question for the magic dealers who operate online now, mm -hmm. but I can only, I can only speak from my own context teaching students read the old books they seek if if the only book you have is expert card technique <laughs> you, you can study that book for the next 10 years and not feel like you're missing anything that's mm -hmm. if you truly get into it look how much mileage you've got out of Paul rico mm -hmm. okay that's my advice read seven what is it to me the most ideal way of finding my authentic voice? Very simple. Tell the truth. Everywhere. Not just in magic. Everywhere where you are engaged with people, tell the truth. Become mm. a practitioner of radical honesty. Make sure you both read the book by Dr. Blanchard. Radical honesty. What does I'm this do? Down. By practicing radical honestly, you'll be able to handle any situation that might be potentially confronting. And you might be the lone voice in the room which says, hold on a minute, let's look at just objectively, while everyone is in the herd mentality. But mm. your voice is the one that transforms the situation. In the magic market, The authentic voice is really, really hard because mm. it's really easy to take a well-crafted magic trick and publish a watered-down variation and call mm. that original thinking. <laughs> Nothing makes me madder than seeing such crap published. It's happened with a few of my routines. I've seen it. But here's the thing. I spent 25 years focused on cards to pocket as a concept mm. from the minute it's travelers. I became fascinated with cards in my pocket. Mm. When Darwin published scams and fantasies that reinvigorated my interest in travelers. And I used the technology mm. to come up with the purest version ever. You've got the book, so you've seen it. It's, it's and, and, really I'm nice. still, and I'm still fine-tuning it. Mm. So, the authentic... Mike, yeah? Just one thing. Could you move the mic a little bit away from your mouth? How's that? That's perfect. Okay. So, the authentic voice gets developed in proportion to the quality of your studies, which ties in with the next question. Mm. 
<laughs> How important uh, is doing your homework? Stop and think for a minute. If magicians aren't reading, they're not learning. If they've taken the easy route, they will never discover their authentic voice, never. I had one student who didn't do any of the assignments I gave him. And as a result, he missed out on so much additional things I was ready to share, but I didn't share it. Why? Because he didn't do the assignments. Mm. So if I say to a student, I want you to study the version in Stars of Magic, I do that for a reason, because I'm teaching construction and design by osmosis. Because mm -hmm. if he had done the comeback and showed me what he'd learned, I would then take him off on a slight tangent to show him a more linear way of achieving the same result. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. thing. I had to learn this on my own, but I'm, I'm shortcutting the experience for the students who do the work. And also I'm encouraging them to do their own research and analysis. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for me, stu studying magic is much more than just learning tricks. Let me give you an example. Have you read Di Vernon's biography by David Ben? No. Yeah. First of all, it's a wonderful book about a famous magician. It's a wonderful book about the time this famous magician lived. It's a wonderful book about all the great magicians this famous magician networked with and the relationships he had with them. There's a whole chapter of Vernon in Chicago when he meets Stevens. <laughs> and Vernon was 25. We only know Vernon as a 80 year old white haired wizard, but he was a young man, mover and shaker, going into a private members club looking for a man named Stevens. And brazen, he walks right up to him and says, are you Stevens? I've heard a lot about you. I hear you do some unusual things with a deck of cards. Try and picture that scene in your mind. So this is what it looks like when you study magic. You study the history, you read Robert Houdin's book. And if you read his book in particular, all the card tricks that we enjoy today, it's all in there. <laughs> Out of this world, Hofsenzer. Wildcard, Hofsenzer, it's all there, nothing new, okay? So, I like the last few questions because they're all connected. Well, classic magic, visual magic. Well, I answered this earlier. Definitely. Studying, studying the classics is all about osmosis, construction and design understanding the one ahead principle hypervisual magic is great for the virtual reality world that we're in now it's good for adverts mm. that sell a product it might be good for trade shows let's just consider it a leaf which is part of a twig which is part mm. of the branch which is part of the tree that we call magic but it's not the tree. It's just part of the makeup of the tree. Okay. Definitely. 
classic mm. magic is is the roots of the tree mm. okay and finally the fisherman king it's a beautiful story i've given this some thought so just for the uh person who watches this let's talk about the fisherman king what you've got written here is the king is hungry and he's out searching for food one day the fisherman king finds a salmon above a fire and as he tries to eat the salmon he burns his hands the salmon falls to the ground and a little piece comes loose from which the salmon which flies in his mouth and burns him this wound stays with him for the rest of his life and forms him because it prevents him from drinking from the holy grail which will fulfill his dream the fisherman king is left searching for an answer and this wound has left him with a lot of suffering while at the same time gives him a lot of wisdom and makes him a seeker so what is your fisherman king wound okay i can share this with you and i have more than one but i'm going to share with you the very first one that i can remember mm -hmm. my eyes hmm you may notice I've got a lazy eye. This was noticed when I was practically a baby. So by mm. the time I'm about eight years old, I experienced my first surgery. Because I had a detached retina and Coates disease at the back of the eye. I'm speculating now because as a young child, I can only imagine a thought going through my mind, what's wrong with me? I am not perfect. My eyes are hurting. I can't see properly. So my vision is slightly impaired. I'm short-sighted. I need glasses just so I can see out of one eye. So the ability to see and to have a relationship with myself where I feel perfect, at least physically, has always been compromised. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what does this mean in life? Well, psychologically, it probably plagued me. I wasn't good at anything. I certainly wasn't physically mm -hmm. perfect. So I thought to myself, so I didn't mix very well with other kids my age when I was growing up. I was on my own well, physically and psychologically. But when I discovered magic, I found an access to discover answers about who I am, who I could become, what I could create, okay? As time went by, the conversation that I've just shared with you, I was able to find peace with it because it was just a made-up story if you think about it mm. and what i told myself about that story became my reality but it's bullshit it wasn't my reality the fact mm. of the matter is my eye just didn't work well it was just a malfunction of my physicality on the other side of the coin i'm deaf i lost my hearing but I made a better calculation about my hearing than I did about my eyes. 
because when I woke up one morning and I couldn't hear anything, I just thought, oh, well, my ears don't work, but it doesn't mean I can't listen. Mm. So my mutation kicked in and I developed some really interesting superpowers in the art of really listening to people, everyone, everywhere I go, micro expressions, body language, pfft, it's fine, but that's not what I'm really paying attention to. It's the being, the spirit, the energy. There's more communication going on than just the words people are speaking. And mm. uh, what does this mean right now? What it means is I'm present to a lot of pain in the world. Everyone is suffering and it's got mm. nothing to do with COVID, but everything to do with where is my humanity in this crazy world? That's what I'm saying. And my role as a magician is to shock people out of their apathy mm. because a beautiful experience of magic this is what it does to people <gasps> it's a shock it's mm. a shock to the nervous system it's a privilege to pinprick people and get that flinch of a reaction some people try to suppress it let them. If I see it for a tiny second, to me, mission accomplished. Because on the way home, they've got to deal with that uncomfortable feeling they just had. And I say uncomfortable because let's face it, astonishment is uncomfortable for a lot of people, not mm. children. Children are curious. <gasps> oh, oh. But adults, we've got barriers. Our job is to break it down and get right to the heart. So for me, this is a very beautiful thing. And I think of René Lavande. Mm -hmm. I tried to imagine what it was like for him as a baby boy, having lost a hand and having to relearn everything. The feeling of inadequacy, that amputation. How am I going to cope, manage, function? And uh, it's astonishing, actually, how that one event can have a dramatic impact on the life of a human being and to have it happen at a very young age. Mm -hmm. Do you like Batman? Yeah. The character? Yeah. I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of Batman, not just the film, but the concept. Young boy his fisherman wound to see the death of his parents. Mm. In that moment, the young Bruce Wayne died. Simple. The boy dies mm. and he has to recreate himself inside the context of violence because that was the reality he experienced. And to experience it at that age, what a visceral experience to have. James Bond, his parents die in a climbing accident. And what's his fisherman wound? Oh, crikey, it can end at any moment. Well, the world is not enough. That's the Bond motto. The world is not enough. So if you look at his lifestyle, he lives right on the edge, 
He, Bond lives right on the edge of pain and pleasure. The finest clothes, the finest food, the most beautiful women, the coolest car on the planet. And he chooses a profession where it could end at any moment, but he fights to live because the world is, will never be enough. An insatiable appetite for life. That's Bond. Isn't that mm -hmm. incredible? Mm -hmm. So for me, yeah. eyes and hearing, sight, photography, it all fits. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. A great answer. It's, it's, it's a conversation that can go, it can go much deeper, <laughs> but it gives you a snapshot of, well, my existence in this life and trying Definitely. to find my own humanity in it all. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's also a great way to, um, to end the podcast. So I think that's a great way to end the podcast as well. So I want to thank you very much for, for being here and sharing your thoughts and your being with us and for uh, taking for the, the time out of your day. Oh, it's been oh, great. Gosh. I've enjoyed seeing you both again and keep up the good work. I'm very impressed with what you're all doing. Okay.